We're trying to reach our goal of 50 Patreon members by the end of July, and now we're 70% of the way there. So here's a few quick shout outs to our newest members to help us get to this level. Gary Paradise of Concept Data, our first supporter in the land down under. Thank you, brother. Mary McCauley of Ripe Life Wines. If you're looking to support one of our Patreon members and enjoy a nice glass of wine, then check our site out at ripelifewines.com. And Patrick, who's a successful entrepreneur in the UAE, thank you for being our first supporter in the Middle East. And our last three newest members, Bruce Jugan of Benefits Cafe, Kelly Flynn of Kelly Flynn Interiors, and Tony Simpson of BMT Manufacturing. So do you consider yourself to be a smart and helpful person? Do you want to help us reach our goal of 50 Patreon members by the end of next month? If so, then join our Patreon club where you can connect with other smart and helpful people just like you. Join the club by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon to help support the show. I guess you have one question before we get started. I just kind of start off with a random question sometimes is if you had to teach one class to entrepreneurs, what class would you want to teach and why? Yeah, I would want to teach as simple as it is time management. And it's so stupid and basic. It drives me nuts. But I think when I really realize what I want to do with my life and having a business, I don't want it to be all about having the business. My best ideas have happened outside of the office. So in learning time management, giving yourself extra space and those buffer zones in all parts of your day and really having discipline to stick to that. That's been one of like my secrets, I think, to growing the business the way I have is having that space and time management. Nice. So do you do that daily or like when do you block out those times? Yeah. So I actually have delegated the blocking out of time to my office manager. It is daily that I have those times in my day uh, for the most part. I mean, some days are pretty jam packed, but I do stay disciplined. I get into the office a little bit later. So I have my time in the morning to do my planning. And then I also have my time and then I have like little chunks during the day as well. When did you start implementing that? Actually, when I was pregnant, I think we're going to probably dive really deep into that. But when I was pregnant, I realized I needed more time than I was giving myself for strategic planning. I was so damn tired all the time. So yeah, that was like three years ago when I got strict about it. I wound up being like a stay-at-home wife. And I was like, I can't just clean the house all day. Let me like try to start a business. Looking back, I mean, what do you think was the actual hardest thing of building your company? Oh boy. I know what it is and I'm hoping my husband isn't listening. You get so much hate mail for this. I'm really sorry. <laughs> my name is Nicole Snow. I'm the founder and CEO of Darn Good Yarn and company itself is 11 years old and I am 36 years old, which is kind of nutty to think about. And where are you based out of? We're based out of central New York. Okay. I'm looking at the name of the city. I don't think I even want to try to pronounce it. What does it say on LinkedIn? What's the name of the city you're in? I think LinkedIn right now says Schenectady. Yeah. Yeah, we're up in Clifton Park, which is a little easier to say now. We just moved up here a couple of months ago. I was in a 4,000 square foot warehouse and we just moved into a 12,000 square foot facility, which is baller and I love it. So yeah, I didn't know if you're switching locations because it was too hard to pronounce the name or it sounds like, yeah, you're actually upgrading your company and the size of it. Yeah, we're upgrading. You moved into a 12,000 square foot space, you said. So why don't you tell us about the size of your company as far as employees and revenue and just give us a little bit more background on the company. Yeah, we're celebrating our 26th employee this last week. I've made like four or five new hires in the past four weeks here at Darn Good Yarn. Just for perspective, back in July of last year, I had eight employees total. So we are still on a growth path. In terms of revenue, we finished out 2018 a little over 7 million in gross sales. And we're still growing on top of that. I think we'll post around 11 or 12 million this year. It's still a super exciting time. Like I said, I've had the business for 11 years. I own 51% of it. My husband owns 49% of it, the way it should be. I'm joking around. But yeah, no, I'm totally bootstrapped. I started this from a savings account and I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started the company. It started from two boxes of yarn in a guest bedroom. So it's like one of those Tech Valley stories where someone's in a garage. It's really a lot like that. And it was just this idea that, hey, I realized really soon on with the product that I was importing that it could be used as a conduit to create safe and sustainable jobs for people in India and Nepal who were kind of like forgotten about the caste system there and get these people stable employment and security so they can feed their families and send their kids to school. Well, yeah, luckily we got a lot of people in India who listen to the podcast. They're in our top 10 as far as countries that listen to us. Awesome. I love India. <laughs> yeah. About the yarn, is are we just talking like a ball of yarn? Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly you do? 
I have no sewing history or really understand the whole concept. Yes, people are really shocked to find out that the industry that we serve is a $44 billion with a B, $44 billion industry between kids' crafts, arts and crafts, sewing, knitting and crochet. And it's had a surge in the past 10 years. So I kind of feel like I've got luckily into the industry at a great time. I started the company when the recession was really in full swing, which is like, I think I probably share this with a lot of other people who've been on your show. We're like, let me start a business during recession. Like not the smartest thing, but then in hindsight, it winds up being the smartest thing because you're just so scrappy and even a more solid foundation than you would have when the times are good. But the yarn itself is special because it's made from reclaimed material. So this is like scraps of silk. In Southeast Asia, women wear sari. So if you've ever seen the traditional dress, like beautiful textiles that they wear and they're draped over their bodies. I just love them so much. Any Bollywood fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. We're taking those remnants from either manufacturing or these are like seconds that people are going to throw out in their own house. Think about when you just like clean out your closet, right? And then you give yourself the goodwill. Similar process is happening with these garments in Southeast Asia. So we have a process that people go around, collect them, buy them off of people, and we tear them down and turn them back into yarn and actually other garments as well. One of the hidden facts over at Durnga Yarn is that 75% of our revenue currently comes from the sale of clothing and not yarn. So it's been a really interesting product mix as we've continued to grow. So you can take like old t-shirts and stuff and you're using that as yarn to put together with your yarn? Yeah, you can use t-shirts. We generally will stick to saris because they're beautiful. They're texturally really awesome. You'll get things with like little embellishments on them, like sequins and rhinestones and some of our ribbons and the colors and dyes that are being used in India, especially. It's just so damn colorful. It's really hard to find that here in the States. And yeah, you keep referring to Southeast Asia and India. So yeah. did you make this? I mean, all this stuff coming from that part of the world? Yeah, currently it is. We do a little bit of work with some other yarn lines in Latin America and South America, but predominantly 95% of what we're doing isn't easy. So why in that area? Are you from there? No, I'm not. I'm a white girl from New Jersey and I didn't know anything. I was really lucky. I found a woman who was Indian who came from a manufacturing family out of Delhi and she really taught me the ropes on how to work with wholesalers in that country. The thing that I love about India though is there's a lot of small business hustlers just like we have here in the States. The difference for me in terms of working with small businesses is that they're going to be really flexible. They're really interested in making long-term relationships. And I realized that really early on. So I was able to get away with like really low MOQs or minimum order quantities. So instead of ordering 10,000 of one color yarn, which is kind of really unapproachable for someone who's bootstrapping the company, I was able to order 20. And that was really the difference of me succeeding in business and not initially. Yeah. You have basically the whitest girl name. Nicole Snow, so I'm kind of joking, like, <laughs> you from that area, but... And I don't watch Game of Thrones. Everyone asks me that. I will clear that out right now. I don't watch Game of Thrones. I'm a loser. That makes two of us, because I don't either. Unfortunately, I probably lost everybody on this episode yeah. now. Both of us Everyone have. just clicked off. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we go back to kind of how you got started with this business? I don't know if it makes sense to say like where you went to school and graduated and if you started the business right out of there or kind of if you want to just take us along chronologically, I think that's the best way to do it. Yes, I'll be quick about it. But I went to Clarkson University in upstate New York. At that time, it was known as like an engineering and hockey school and the business school was just kind of distant third. But now the business school actually has been getting a lot of great accolades on the past few years after I left. Because of <laughs> I you? Think there's, You've been there's, donating? Yes, because I'm not there anymore. I kid. After that, I actually was uh, active duty Air Force. So I was an Air Force officer. I did contracting while I was stationed out in California at Vandenberg. And after I got out of the Air Force, I realized that, well, I worked a job for a hot second, got fired from that. And then uh, I was like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And it was at a time when it was like, when you said you were an entrepreneur, it just meant that you were unemployed. I don't know if you can relate to that. I think we're like around the same age, but I remember like, oh yeah, I'm starting a business. They're like, oh, you couldn't get a job. That's what people would say. <laughs> and so it wasn't as cool as it is today. And I wound up being like a stay at home wife. My husband's job moved us around a ton. And I was like, I can't just clean the house all day. Let me like try to start a business. And originally before Darn Good Yarn came to be, I was more looking at like just general imports. So working still with India, but doing more like importing home goods, like rugs and a little bit of clothing, but mostly home goods. And then, like I said, I met this woman and she really helped mentor me and show me the ropes on how to like get exactly what you needed manufacturing wise. And this was cool. We did that together. We went to some trade shows in Vegas, which are kind of really hard to get into if you are just really starting out. Like it's a minimum of $10,000 to just get on the floor on top of all the other booth costs and everything. So it's really capital intensive. So we sort 
sort of split those costs and that helped me really see like, oh my God, there's like this whole big world out there. Well, do you want to tell us about this woman? Because I think this is kind of important because if you never met this woman, this would have never happened. Why don't you tell us where you met her and exactly kind of how this happened a little bit more before you get further into it? Yeah. So she has a really famous clothing line now as uh, she's selling out like Bloomingdale's and stuff like that. We've like parted ways, but I was hustling at a flea market slash craft fair in central california when i lived out there and she just thought it was really bizarre that this white girl was selling all this indian stuff she's like what's going on here like what are you doing and she was so interested and i was telling her like hey this is what i want to do and then she sort of took me on she needed help with her website i knew enough to be dangerous and i was like yeah i'll help you with your photography i'll do whatever so i helped her source models and get her website up and running and this was like i was doing this all from like a bootleg version of dreamweaver so it's just just like this learning. I was just hungry. She didn't pay me. Like I just sort of slaved away in her garage, helping her pack boxes out. And I saw how she was able to grow. And it was just astonishing to me to see the quantities of things that she was moving wholesale. And I sort of just took that knowledge and helped her grow her business. I had my little side hustle. I, the business was still sort of a side hustle for me because I was supporting my husband still. He was an electrical engineer over at Raytheon. That really took a lot to support as well. And what wound up happening is we moved to more Southern California. And so that distance happened between both of us. I didn't have that direct mentorship anymore. And I don't know, I got a little late easy too, but I started like day trading stocks and I was doing really well with that. And I was really fragmented. I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was a very typical 20 year old with no direction. I said, well, let me learn how to knit. That seems like the wife thing to do. I said, well, let me use my supply chain networks that I've already set up though. And then I found recycled silk yarn. I'm like, this is cool. It's recycled. It hides all of my mistakes really well. Cause I started darning yarn barely knowing how to knit. From there, that's when like the really good parts of the story of turning darning yarn into a conduit to create safe and sustainable jobs because I couldn't reorder this yarn the way I could reorder all of the other products that I was used to getting because this was truly a side hustle of these cottage industries within India and these pockets of India. So these women were spinning yarn and then they were maybe going to work out on the fields. And so this was like a very seasonal thing for them. And that to me, when I look at it, well, anyone, you can't really run a business if you can only get seasonal supply of sort of a commoditized product like yarn. This woman, I guess you had met in, what was her name? Shahida. Shahida. Yeah. Basically, she'd have a network out there that you kind of connected with, even though you were ordering these yarns from people in India, were you doing it online? Like, tell us even the side hustle when you got started, how you were getting that product from India to Southern California. Yeah. So some of the product I was using her supply networks that she had set up with her family. So that was something that was very difficult to duplicate because of those connections. And this was really before Alibaba was a huge part of the international trade movement. So I sort of had an insider track working with her, but the yarn itself was coming from a totally separate place. And it was something I had set up a relationship I'd set up outside of that mentorship. And how do you set that up? Set up the relationship. Did you fly over there and meet those people or call them? Yeah. A lot of it's like through email and just video conferencing on Skype. Okay, That was it originally. Now we go over there every couple of years and it works really well. So even in those early years, you said what made it viable for you is you could order small quantities versus like in America, you might have to order 10,000 units. You could order mm -hmm. 20 units from India. Right. Are they different types of yarn too? Or are they just different colors? Mm -hmm. Different types of yarn. There's different thicknesses. And I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah, I don't know any of it. When I first started, I mean, really the funny story of Darn Yarn is I got my original 50 balls of yarn and they were this one thickness. And then my second shipment was like, it was all skinny. It was a lot thinner. I'm like, oh shit, I have now 100 balls of this yarn. No one's going to buy this because I didn't even know that thinner yarn was a thing. Right. That's how much of a novice I was. I don't know. That's the reason I'm asking. And when I look back, I said, that was actually the magic was in the mistake. I said, okay, well, let me, I don't know, put on some lame ass marketing hat. And I called it the skinny. So I made everything kind of very diet based. Like I had another one that came in thick and then it went thin. I was like, oh, we'll call that the yo-yo diet. And it resonated though with my audience at the time. It's just like, you know, you can kind of take those mistakes. I always say like, it's just a lot of upside opportunity when mistakes come in because it's, there's always someone out there that if you put the right spin on it, not in a manipulative way, but if you understand how to use the product and then present it to your customer, they might be looking for that and they didn't even know it. Like I didn't even know that that was a thing. And then I learned how to use it. And then I presented it to my customer and they were like, we needed this. And I got a lot of feedback really instantly that I've been looking for a thinner style of recycled silk yarn. This is exactly what I need for this project. And I'm like, Cool. Right. So here we are. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. 
You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you wanna check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed, you gotta become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. I think that's important what you said there. You're not manipulating the different spin is like you could have called it the mistake yarn and then they would be sold for way less versus yes. having kind of clever names or something that the women that who are buying it from you could relate to. I mean, when people even in the early years, were you just marking up the price of the yarn and selling the yarn in these balls? How are you making money? Or were you actually sewing stuff together at first and then selling the products that you made? No. Just tell us about the right now. It's still kind of a side hustle. We haven't gotten into you doing it full time. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I work once I moved out of Northern California, I was working two other jobs. I worked with a commercial real estate investor for a financial planner. Because again, I still didn't believe in this yarn thing. My mom still kind of doesn't quite know what I do. She's like, oh, it's adorable that you get to sell yarn all day. You're like, yeah, it's something like that. But originally I was just selling the yarn. And the way I tried to do a value add into it, as simple as it is, I balled it into balls. It would come in these things called skeins and you can't use it like that. You can't take it out of the box and just start knitting or crocheting with it. So I was pre-balling everything. So in my kitchen, I was just using this little machine that is used in the industry. And I just sit there cranking away at it. And there'd just be like threads everywhere. <laughs> it was a mess. My schnauzer had bits and pieces of yarn all in his fur all of the time. That's how it differentiated what I was doing with other people who were selling. There was only like two or three other people selling something similar in North America at that time. And it was called Skein? It came in Skein? How do you spell that? S-K-E-I-N. S-K. E-Y-N? E-I-N. Oh, E-I-N. Well, yeah, it's because I'm just looking up because that makes sense. So you had to repackage it even then because I've yes. only seen balls of yarn before, but I never know it mm -hmm. came in a different way. I just thought they would ship it in balls of yarn to you. So that makes right. sense. How much were you buying the product for and then selling it for? Gosh, at that time, I was FedExing everything. So it was expensive. I want to say I was getting stuff in at around like $4 a ball, maybe high threes, depending on currency exchange. And then I was reselling it between like 10 and $15 a ball. So it was a good markup, but I was also wholesaling it as well. So that was then I was just 2Xing that. And there's a lot of moving parts. So you even just said the currency exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes a difference. Maybe someone would have thought about originally if you're just buying in America, it's very simplistic, but was that in your favor the whole time or did you ever have any issues with that? I wound up just doing my pricing so that fluctuations to one side or the other didn't make that big of a difference for me, that I had what I needed in place and I wasn't just cutting things so thin that it became impossible for me to run my business. The other thing though, looking back at how I got into this is I did have that other import business prior to this. And I like to call that my Fisher Price business because I did learn on this very small scale how to import, what to expect when brokerage fees come in knocking at your door, because it's like, oh, I owe this broker $200. Like, what the hell is this? I really got a lot of education for a couple thousand dollars just starting that business. Do you have to have a broker help you get it over here? Just tell us about anything like early on that you even learned in your quote unquote Fisher Price company. Yeah. That someone who's like wants to import stuff from India, stuff that you didn't know that you wish you knew. There's two things to kind of consider that I thought about when first figuring out like what is going to be the real product that I import after importing all of this sort of weird random stuff. And I'm talking like tens and twenties of them, not huge quantities. So one is horrible imports where you need more of a true brokerage. And if any brokers are listening out there, just close your ears, I guess, at this point in the show. But anything under $2,500 doesn't usually come under the same level of scrutiny in terms of duties and taxes that something over $2,500 is. So an invoice value of $2,500 hundred dollars. In that way, I tried to just get a sampling. And again, it comes down to these relationships. I really wanted to make relationships with my suppliers. And I was just a hustle. I said, look, I know I'm small right now, but this is like what I'm doing and telling them my story. They were more flexible in working with me on these ridiculously small quantities. And you also find very high quality suppliers, I think that way too. People that are really looking to grow with you, I think in some cases are willing to work with you in that way. The ones that are just like, no, this is our MOQ. This is what it is. And you go like, okay, fine. You obviously don't want to help me grow my business. And that's how I looked at it. And those suppliers, most of them are still with me to this day and they've grown with me. And I'm usually like their sole customer at this point, which is pretty cool. I think that's important. Even if someone said no to you, again, they said, no, I can't help you. Well, why don't you just share your story for a minute? 
say, hey, I know this is a small quantity, but this is my plan. And then that makes them rethink it. So it's good that you're at least even doing that. I mean, maybe they give you a hard no and you're just like, screw them sometimes. But other times, sounds like they might be a little bit indifferent. Sharing your growth plan maybe could help you as far as like getting these people to help you as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the mentorship keys is that dealing with the Indian culture, like I like to wheel and deal. <laughs> you could ask any one of our, definitely our shipping vendors, because we get them against each other all the time. That's sort of like a little game for us now internally. But you have to be able to negotiate. And so sometimes the first part of that negotiation is the minimum order quantity. And if you can kind of get around that and start to work with them as partners in your organization versus this sort of being an adversarial relationship, turning that into a partnership, it's going to open a lot of doors for you in terms of what they can do and how they they can press on what they're doing locally. So what do I mean by that is if I have a yarn and I have maybe a special request from an artist, like, hey, can we make this a little more blue and put this twist in here? And there's a lot that goes into making a yarn, believe it or not. But if I have those sort of requests coming in, I know that with that relationship I've built, I can ask them for those requests. At the end of the day, really my customers' needs and wants. But I just want to go back to the $2,500 thing for the invoice. Keeping it under that initially to get your feet wet and understand how that process works, works great. I'm a really big fan of DHL versus even FedEx and UPS at those lower levels. They tend to always, they've traditionally had the most competitive shipping rates. TNT actually is great out of India. And then the other thing I did is harmonize tariff codes. Not a very sexy sounding thing, but it's the cool thing about recycled silk yarn is that it comes in duty free. It's one of the very few items that doesn't have a tax associated with it. So I do that on purpose. Cottons can have a huge tax put on them. Wool is crazy. And those are the mainstays of the yarn and craft industry. And I said, okay, well, actually I can be even more competitive because I don't have this tax, but it's not something that's necessarily realized on the front end. So I did research in these codes and I read through like, okay, how something needs to be manufactured. It needs to have over a certain percentage of material coming from this classification. So it comes in without these taxes and you wind up saving a ton of money as a result. Dang, that's pretty smart. I mean, like, how did you figure that out? Because I did everything myself in the beginning. And like I said, I made the mistakes with that Fisher Price business. Like I was importing cotton rugs and I'm like, oh my God, like this is a huge tax okay, why am I getting taxed? And I remember calling up FedEx and I talked to a broker there and they talked me through what that is. And then I just sort of did the internet research after that. And as I just started like a nerd, just sort of looking through, I'm like, oh, there's all these different taxes depending on the product and how it's made. I can just have it manufactured to meet these qualifications. So it hits that harmonized tariff code. I think anyone could just like rewind this part now and just understand that importing, not even just from India, it sounds like anywhere you kind of use these strategies to help lower your cost if you're importing, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Are we about 2008 now? I want to make sure we stay on the timeline because this is kind of still a side hustle. I want to yeah. just make sure we know when we make the transition to you going full-time with this. Yeah. When did I go full-time? I'm just sort of recycling. You have a kid. Any moms out there, it's like, what happened to your brain afterwards is kind of crazy. Yeah. So 2008, and I'd say... 2019. I don't mean to do math because I know I should have this number like right at the top of my head. It's fine. I'm just looking at your LinkedIn. It says April 2008 is kind of when you started Darn Good Yard. Oh, yeah, it is when I started, but you're still side. Yeah, when I went totally full time was like around 2014. So when did you have your child? 2016. Okay. So that's, I'm like putting you on the spot there. We can erase that part. Yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> okay. So it was a side business for about four years before you kind of went full-time into it? Yes. Okay. Should we start talking about when you went full-time, like what made you want to do that? Or is there anything else up to this point that we should know about before you went full-time with Darn Goodyard? Well, I think part of my success is that I am bootstrapped. And so during this whole time, I was totally saving. And yeah, I have my little pocket of money for the business itself. But in terms of my husband bringing home his paycheck, that wasn't going into Darn Good Yarn. Like I was still saving that as if Darn Good Yarn wasn't going to go anywhere. And I think that's an important distinction that I don't necessarily hear about all the time. It allowed us to have this really great nest egg, invest that, and then from there, make our investments in a way that I can have a line of credit that was secure to those investments. So that still stayed in the market. And if I needed to grow the business, I could tap into that line of credit and it didn't take out what we were doing as a family. So I was still very into budgeting that whole time so that if the business didn't do well or I decided I didn't want to do that, it wasn't going to hit the overall financial wellness of my family. I think that's one thing I think anyone who listens knows I try to talk about because again, it's not talked about like ever on any other podcast that I listen to about business or entrepreneurship is like, actually, oh yeah, I have to save my money in order to actually do something. <laughs> I mean, it's not that hard, but then I feel like so many people, I think most people know, at least in America, it's just like they overspend on everything. But this is the yeah. one time it's like, 
you got to save as much as you can in order to do this. I mean, that's the only way I was able to start this podcast was because I saved money doing other stuff. If I didn't, then I'd yeah. never be able to. Yeah. I always went with this idea and I still do. I never want to operate anything feeling like I have a gun behind my head. I have like personal guarantees on stuff in the business now, but if something terrible happened, I can write that check. I have the cash in the bank to do that. I personally really like that place because it's one powerful, but it doesn't make you necessarily have to chase trends that won't be fruitful for the legacy of your actual business. And so I'm trying to think in this, where are we going to be really in 20 years? Are we still going to be around versus three years? And yeah, we made a couple million extra bucks, but it's not really the legacy I want the company to have. So I think having those cash positions personally and in the business are really important. So why don't we talk about when we started going full-time and making that transition? It looks like maybe your last job, as far as like side business, if you will, might've been 2010, 2011-ish. Yeah. You said you went full-time in about 2012 of We're Darn Good Dread? Yeah, 2012 sounds about right. Okay. And a lot of it was, so I didn't say, oh, today's the day I'm going to go full-time. <laughs> it's never that straight line like they make out in the movies. My husband's job was moving us like crazy. When we finally moved to New York three years ago, it was our 15th move in 10 years. I've lived all over the US. And so the move away was from those jobs I had because I really did enjoy them. But it was okay, now we're moving out to Utah for my husband's job there. And I can't just go and get a job for a year. And I didn't know if we were going to be there. I didn't know at that point how long I was going to be any place because of how frequently we were moving around. It just naturally became an everyday job for me. But when I started putting in the 10, 12 hours a day on it, it just started to blossom into this like, oh, wow, this is actually truly a thing now. Well, how about personally? Was that difficult trying to make friends when you're moving all everywhere? No, I'm not really a friend person. <laughs> I got you. I wish I was. I think I'm my own best friend. And yeah, I'm really lame. Like, I wish I was like, oh, yeah, I made all these friends. There's no problem to pick up. But I just like hanging out at home. I'm feeling you. Well, it's also good that you had an online business at this point or else you've been screwed, right? Yeah. It didn't have any issues with you moving around because I know at first you were in California when you mm -hmm. were doing this, but was it an issue, even though it's quote unquote an online business with like shipping and stuff and trying to figure that stuff out? Was that difficult? It was the best discipline I could have ever had because his company was giving us like maybe one or 2,000 pounds to move. And if anyone has moved and they've done it by like a pound quota, you know that 2,000 pounds isn't anything. I mean, think about how heavy your luggage is when you go fly somewhere. It taught me how to turn inventory like a mother. I knew how to bundle things and I learned it was on the road where I realized I can't just sell one ball of yarn. I have to sell five at a time because the inventory is going to sit for too long. And we still use it today in terms of kits and how we actually put the yarn out into the universe. Turning that inventory is like our mantra. We have right now in 10,000 square feet of our warehouse, I turn that inventory 17 times a year. So it's something I still do to this day. So that's part of your success today. Is there anything else? I have a really good staff. <laughs> I've gotten very lucky over the years. I mean, there have been years here that it's been like a Kill Bill sort of scene where everyone was getting axed. And I'm not really necessarily proud of that, but it was my leadership skills getting honed in. But I think the other part of my success came unexpectedly having my daughter, who's two and a half now. I thought having a kid was the worst thing that could have happened to me as a business owner. I've watched so many other women have their kids and then all of a sudden become like these hippy dippy chicks who like don't want to run their business anymore aggressively. And I'm like, is that going to happen to me? I'm so afraid. And I couldn't work as much as I needed to. And I thought I was delegating before I got pregnant. I thought I was doing like all the Air Force leadership things I've been taught. When I got pregnant though, and I needed to truly take time and not be stressed, I realized that my leadership skills kind of actually really sucked. And I was really micromanaging people going into that pregnancy. I had to rely on my team and ask for help a lot more. And in doing that, I allowed them to blossom and do their jobs even more effectively. And so when I think about what was that pivotal point, it was during that time in 2016 where I had to rely on them and let them actually do their jobs and be as smart as they can actually be. What's driving you so much at this point in time? Because you said you didn't want to become like those other moms that you saw who kind of seemed like they were chilling after they became pregnant. Because <laughs> it sounds like you had some you inner drive You so much here. hate mail for this. I'm really sorry. It's all good. <laughs> I'm going to give them your email address, not mine at the end. Okay, cool. For me, it always goes back to the jobs we're creating. If it's domestically or internationally, man, I get so revved up when I see success stories in India, when I see people here move to the next place in their life, like when I see a mid-20-year-old buy their first house and it's because they're getting a little bit of financial awareness and they're seeing their true potential here, like that gets me really revved up. That's like a drug to me. So that's why I keep pushing as hard as I can. And it sounds like that's what pushes you kind of now, but how about even in the beginning when it was just you? I mean, was there something like, I want to be the yarn lady of the world or what? 
No, I realized the thing that pushed me then was helping people in these other countries. That's when it was just me. I was like, okay, as one individual person, I can create jobs in ways that I can't hear necessarily not at the stage. And that's what drove me. So when I was able to pay for people's surgeries over there or help them rebuild parts of their house, if it was wiped out by flooding, that really energized me. Well, how about even at first? I mean, did you see like a picture of someone in India? Because you hadn't been there over there when you decided to start getting it over there. I mean, did you get one note from somebody saying, thank you because you bought my yarn. I was able to do this. Was there any one moment there in the beginning? I wish it was like romantic, but there wasn't. I just, I don't know. Sometimes you just have a feeling that you're on the right path. And again, going from that place of, I never had to operate the business to make money. My husband had a great job. I just realized that if I do this well, if I execute on this well, I'm going to create safe jobs and they're going to be sustainable. So these people don't have to have side hustles. So that the more yarn I need on those POs each month, that means that they're able to stay at home with their kids and spin yarn and sell it back to me. And in a lot of cases, these folks are illiterate. And I knew that too. So I wasn't expecting any kind of magical postcard or something that I framed on my wall since it was harder work than that. We talked about kind of what's driven you now and whatnot. And there was no magical transition for you going full time in this. So it sounds like it was kind of step by step. But should we jump back again to 2012 or 2013-ish of when you started putting in even more hours into Darn Good Yard and these transition periods for you? <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because social media and YouTube, I mean, anyone could go on the Darn Good Yarn YouTube page and I won't let anyone take them down because they're just like these relics of yesteryear with me with like much different hair. And I was just trying to figure out how YouTube worked. And I was doing these videos and I would like drink a whole bunch of wine. So I got the guts to like get up in front of these videos and show people how to use the yarn and what I'm making and just really what's going on in my life in like a vloggy sort of sense. There was a lot of exploration at that point. And that's what a lot of my days were like. I was also doing a lot of pattern design, learning how to even do photography and all of that kind of basic stuff. It's really easy to say, okay, here we are in 2019 and I can just open up a Shopify store. I can outsource someone to do photography for me just by going on Upwork. And it was all DIY back then. I mean, at least for me, it was. I didn't really necessarily realize if those resources were even available. I was learning how to do it all every step of the way. It was a little bit grinding. Yeah. I mean, I even went to your YouTube channel right now. I sorted it. To have the oh god oh first. god <laughs> it's bad but it's pretty amazing <laughs> how many views you have even like maybe your fourth or fifth video you've got like seventy thousand views on air which is kind of crazy <laughs> to me about yarn it's crazy yeah were you just pushing people is that kind of one thing that really helped you in the beginning i wanted to get to know my customer i had no idea who i was selling to so i wound up making great friends through these people still when they email the company today but even back then it was nicole and darn good yarn like it's synonymous and that was the backbone of it i didn't realize i have all these cute buzzwords now like we were making community in an online environment but i was doing that but i was doing it in a very like bootstrappy kind of way so were people just writing comments on the youtube videos and stuff like how were they connecting with you were you sending them your email yeah a lot of email i did a live show for a little bit and that was hilarious and it was really just an hour of watching me get more and more drunk talking about my craft products because actually, I kind of have the same issue with the podcast. It gets pretty annoying that I look how many downloads there are. And it's like trying to connect with anyone who's listening. It seems like you were trying to connect with people who are buying the yarn. It's like I'm trying mm-hmm. to connect with as many people as I can listening to the podcast. I don't know if you have suggestions on things that worked with that or didn't work with that. I did a lot of contests in the earlier years, even just yarn naming contests, like color names. So you put up like, hey, name this pink color of yarn. I'll give you a $5 gift card. And it was so basic, but people were so into it. And you had the people that were really got what you were doing. And I interacted with people because I really wanted to interact with them. And that's like the beauty of what we do still to this day. It really is the hardest part. I think a lot of people know it's like you want to talk to your customers, right? And try to figure out what you can do to help them the most to make a good product. But it's sometimes that interaction is the hardest part. I think it's just like being a friend. Yarn is but like anything else. Let's just be human and really get to know people. Like what are people's family lives like and not being afraid to talk about that. I think I was very authentic when I did those videos and like my social media posts at those times and my emails. I didn't try to sell. I didn't know how to sell. And I think that was a almost a blessing initially. I was just being myself and trying to make friends. And then, hey, by the way, I have this yarn company if you want to buy any yarn. That seemed to work. Again, it wasn't for the purpose of manipulation. It's I really wanted to get to know who my people are. Back then too, in comparison to today, where it's a much more crowded market, that community wasn't really there. So people were looking for it. 
Well, it seems like that worked out well for you in the beginning. Was there anything else? That's really it. And I think the other part of what made Junkie Yarn successful in the beginning was that I had two different streams of revenue and one being retail and one being wholesale. And wholesale allowed me to get a deeper, almost leading indicator an understanding of what stores and artists were needing and using as their artwork and their stores evolved. So I could sort of get ahead of trends for my retail clientele. So the two sort of served each other really well. And I think thinking about it more holistically and not looking at what the industry at the time was doing, because the industry at that time was not direct to consumer. If you were quote a manufacturer or an importer, you only did wholesale and that was it. And I was the black sheep for a pretty long time in the industry because I took on this hybrid approach of reaching direct to consumer and also doing wholesale. What was the first year that you think you had significant revenue? Because again, I want to kind of keep it chronological on your growth (laughs) here and trying to figure that out. Yeah, I'd say like once we hit a million bucks, which was, let me see, seven, we did 5.4 in 2017, 3.2, 2016. So yes, 2015, we did 1.3. And I think that was a huge win. It's like, holy shit, I did a million bucks in sales. Like, this is crazy. (laughs) At that point, I had purchased a commercial building to actually have my yarn and my business operate out of, even though it was just me and one other part-time person who's now my operations manager. So it was a hustle back then. Okay, so up to 2015, it was just two of you? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that is significant revenue, obviously, like over a million. I mean, even the years when you said, quote unquote, you went full-time, let's say 2012 to 2015, were you just slowly growing revenue? Was it like 100, 200K? It was like, they were true doubles. I mean, to go back to 2008, it was, I think I did like $16,000 that year in sales. Don't spend it all in place. I went from like a quarter mil to a little over a half mil. And then I got to a million, like it was that order. So I was doubling. I wouldn't hire an employee on unless I had another quarter million dollars of revenue coming in. What was the success on that growth? Were you upgrading your website? What else were you doing other than turning inventory? It sounded like a lot. I was understanding Facebook ads and the power of them. It wasn't huge. It wasn't like anything like how it is today. I sound like an old lady saying that, but I really saw the power of it pretty early on. And that was a huge part of our success. And at that point, I also doubled down on collecting email addresses. And I learned how to have my email game pretty sharp for back then. Back in the day, it was a little bit more copyrighty, like the longer form emails. And those resonated at the time. That was probably, I mean, Facebook ads were the biggest part of what we did. And then getting people's email addresses. I mean, of course, website. I always invested heavily in technology and trying to test things. I remember sitting on my couch and I would just go down these rabbit holes of looking in the Shopify app store. You know, like, oh, that's an interesting app. I wonder how I can make that work. Like, why is that app even in existence? And I just sort of like try to figure out how that, because I don't think I'm that smart. I just try to figure out how things work in my world. And so I would wind up finding these apps and I'm like, wow, I understand now. This is how we can use it. And then really integrate it into Darn Good Yarn. So I think back to one of the best apps and it's not around anymore. It's this app called Retention Grid. Because this is Shopify used to have crappy reporting back in the day. I love you Shopify, by the way, but back in the day, it was really crappy. They would tell you like 30 days ago, these are the customers that purchased from you. 30 days ago, over 90 days, these are your kind of red alert. You need to do something to win these customers back. So even those win back campaigns that are just sort of roll off the tip of your tongue now, that wasn't really part of the scene back then. And that app helped me to really see that whole schema and how that works. And that was very important and understanding retention. I mean, I'm on your website right now. And yeah, you've got a great looking website. I said one of the coolest things, even while you're talking that I brought up is you have a pop-up that I've never seen. That's pretty badass. It's like, pops up and it you just click spin to win and you get a mystery offer. You know Hell what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> I don't know. Some people like have the tech person and I didn't know if you just totally never visit your website anymore or whatever, but I mean, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. So it's just like you looking at these other e-commerce sites and trying to figure out if they have something cool, trying to implement it and figure out how you could use that and why you'd want to use it. Right. It's looking at other websites. I don't really look at my competitors' websites because I think our industry is antiquated, but (laughs) I'm getting a lot of hate mail from this one, but that's okay. But I looked at other technologies. Like it's easy to say like, oh yes, this is how MailChimp works now in segmentation or Klaviyo or behavioral pops and what all that is. It's easy to say it on the other side. I really like to get in and figure out how I can darn good yarn technology and have it translate onto our site. I think I'm really good at breaking apps, but I like to figure out just how they work in my sales funnel, whatever that is. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. 
to be honest. I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm but, feeling you. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole you know, thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? So yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming to Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to it like my workout. I like how you like really dive in. Instead of just asking like the typical questions, like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it and such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check in once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like say, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> And you said email list that I guess early on that kind of helped when you grew that in like a longer form email. Now, what do you think is like the future? To me, people are like, hey, Austin, collect emails from your website, you know, for your podcast listeners or whatever. But I'm like, I get so many offers now. I don't even check my emails at all. It sounds like you're pretty futuristic thinking as far as technology wise. I don't know if you have any thought process on that as far as like what's the next wave to connect with your customers? That's a great question. We segment out. So we still have a lot of different flavors of emails and how we're serving them. And it's just tracking behaviors, how people are clicking, where they're clicking, then sitting down in those marketing meetings and saying like, what is going on in this person's life that they're doing this or interacting with any piece of marketing content and not just email. I've gotten us away from using the term funnel, even though I just use it like five minutes ago, but it's not looking at customers to go down a funnel. It's what's this customer's journey. And so for us, it's, yeah, maybe someone's knitting something now, but they might want to be wearing a piece of our clothing in a month or two and really diving in deep that way, always thinking about our customers. And that I think gives you cues on how to reach them in the future. Content is always important to us. We do our free pattern Fridays and that gets people on site and then it gets them pixeled for another 30 days so you can retarget them with more sales geared marketing. Yeah. Free pattern Fridays. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Well, we work with some great influencers on Instagram who are just amazing fiber artists, either knitters, crocheters. Like there's a whole gamut. I'm not going to bore you with that, but we work with them and they make some really cool patterns for us. They show our customer how to use our yarn because our yarn is a little bit weird. This is the stuff you're getting in Michael's or even a lot of your mom and pop yarn stores around the country. It's funky. It's recycled. It's organic looking. So you need sort of an artist to lead someone and guide the customer through this journey. So the Free Pattern Fridays is the place where that happens. And crafters love pattern. That's the piece of content that they love. Business people love five tips to make money. Crafters, like this is crack for them. So we send out these patterns, send them to the site and they can download it for free. And then they get pixeled, which is that's really a big beauty of it. And then we can retarget them. And so your ultimate customer today, who are they? Like the demographics and I guess the people buying your yarn. It's usually a woman who's over 45 and they're using Facebook for a lot of their social media with a light mix of Instagram and these are people that are upgrading their crafting experience. So these think about if you're into wine, we all like our box wine for maybe everyday use, right? That's for Monday through Friday wine. But on the weekends, you might go for that 60 or $100 bottle of wine because that's a treat for you. In the crafting world, the crafter that we're reaching out to, they're using Michael's sort of as their Monday through Friday craft. But on the weekends, they're really upgrading that experience. And that's where Darn Good Yarn steps in. No, it makes a lot more sense to me. Although like a $25 bottle of wine is pretty expensive to me. But if I'm looking at it as well, I guess I'm curious if you're a consumer, like how many direct to consumer, like what percentage is that versus you still wholesale as well? Wholesale is a very small part of our business right now. At one point, it used to be 60% of our business and now it's like 5%. Wow. That's dropped off. We've really focused on the website and getting direct to consumer. The sad thing is, is that a lot of small main street shops are shutting down. A portion of those are yarn stores. So for me, it didn't make business sense. It was a drag on a small company to 
I felt like we were having to teach a lot of store owners how to run their business. And I'm like, dude, we don't have time for this. There's bigger fish to fry out there on the interwebs. So we launched a subscription box. So we have a $10 yarn of the month box that we have. We have about 20,000 people on that right now per month signed up. That's awesome for us because people can add things on with their monthly subscription. So it's a really awesome club feel. We've invested a lot in making that platform pretty freaking great. And I'd say that's pretty clever because also like you even said something about diversifying your revenue before when you're doing wholesale mm -hmm. and retail. I think that's important versus if you're just doing direct to consumer or if you're doing direct wholesale at first, mm -hmm. like you wouldn't be where you are right now. But you've seen kind of, I think the yarn club, the $10 thing is pretty clever because that's just a, another way of repackaging kind of the same stuff like what you said earlier. Yeah, nothing is linear. It all has to be like an organism. I see the way all of our supply works together. Like, yes, we might sell that one ball of yarn, but then we're also going to sell the kit. And then how do we sort of get the people in between? People are at different places. Again, going back to that idea of what's a customer's journey? We're only here to serve our customers. So at some point, you might have a mom that loves to craft, but she's too damn busy. The $10 yarn club that was going to serve that need for her in that part of her customer journey, right? But when kids are at school, they start kindergarten, she might have more time. We have pattern kits for that. So it's making sure that you have sort of the right pegs for the right holes at those different points for the customer. That all works together. The cool thing about the subscription in terms of revenue is that we have an internal goal here is once we hit 30,000 subscribers per month, which we'll probably be on track to do by the middle of the summer, that covers almost all of our basic overhead for being in the building that we're in right now, which is great. That cuts out so much stress. That's how I like to operate business. I think it's important to have those figures in your head, even if you don't have it written out mentally. If I get this amount of customers, then that's going to cover this, right? I definitely relate to you on that. That's kind of how I think about the podcast. If I get to get sponsors, I'm like, okay, I need this many sponsors to cover this or whatever mm -hmm. versus just monetary ways to think about it every time. Retention is important. If anyone's doing e-com out there, acquisition of customer is really friggin' expensive and it's only getting more expensive. And I read one of the reasons why is because you have a lot of now venture-backed businesses coming online and they're putting up to 40% of that funding into the initial acquisition. So they don't care if they're even breaking even on that first sale. That's scary for a small business. So you need to be doing everything to make that community and make that retention awesome and expanding your product offering if, if that happens. I see business owners sometimes just say like, this is all we are. I could have just easily said, we're only going to be a yarn business because that's what's in our name. But no, the customer wants these other things. Let's give it to them in a way that's aligned with our morals and ethics. Through this yarn club, or is there other things that are also helping you retain the customers? Going back to the free pattern Friday, still giving them that free content. We have some private Facebook groups that we use that are, man, they're frothy. I can't believe the amount of, can't believe it because my customer base are actually really awesome people, but they're just into like helping each other. If someone doesn't know how to do something, oh yeah, go look at this link on, this is how to do it. And so there is definitely a community that's built there too. And that creates a higher barrier entry for any other competitor that might want to impede on your space. And before we got started really with the interview, I kind of asked you if there's one thing you wanted to teach to people, what would that be? And do you want to just like expand a little bit more onto that? Yeah. So I was talking about how I'd want to teach the corny concept of time management. God, it's so important. I think we've all had our best ideas in the shower and with to-do lists that just go on and on, it's easy to get stuck behind your desk before you know it. And I actually had to hire an office manager to help me unstick myself from my desk. But yeah, time management and really putting the right amount of time on things that you need in terms of giving yourself a couple of hours to zone out and think about the strategy and direction of the business. That stuff is like so important. It's so easy to just get stuck in the, oh, I have taxes or I have 940s to file and QuickBooks and all business noise. Going back to just simple time management and making that a priority and having, of course, the discipline to abide to it. I think that needs to just continue to be taught. And it's always a self-improvement thing that I think just evolves with you. Is there any like systems or tools that you use to help you with that now? Hey, Google Calendar. Nothing sexy. I'm a little bit old school. I mean, I have my notebooks and I do have them sectioned out by my strategy, what I'm doing there, and then just my general to-dos. But making sure when I have those to-do lists, sitting down when I have my staff meetings and just going, you know what? This does not need to be on my plate. Okay, you handle this. You pitch this. You do this. You do this. And not feeling guilty about that. I used to have a lot of guilt about asking for help. And like I said, having Anna, I'm like, whatever, you guys are going to do it better and faster than me anyway. And that's why I hired you. Yeah. And I think you're even saying just like blocking out time for 
non-business stuff or stuff for you to get away. If you don't have it on your calendar to block it out, then it's not going to happen. Then you're going to get stuck behind your desk and it just becomes a kind of cycle. It sounds like. Right. And I don't know about anyone else, but like I hit like 33 and my brain is, oh, I don't want to say it, but it's kind of slowing down a little bit. It's not as sharp as it used to be. I get really good thinking done certain parts of the day. And then I'm like, I'm kind of done for the rest of the day. And that's time for me to go home and play Legos. That's okay. But knowing that, and I think owning it a little bit, it's like, okay, the important projects go at this block of time in the day. I think the other part and consideration is scheduling. Well, I just turned 33. So I was kind of figuring out, I was wondering what was happening to me and later in the day. So now I know I appreciate that. You have to take a nap, dude. It's like a 10 minute nap is the key to air power. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But it's like I block out like gym time, for example, if I don't do that, then someone's going to schedule an interview during that time. It's like making sure if you don't schedule these things to refresh and like get out and do something other than think business all day, you're going to go crazy, at least for me. So looking back, I mean, what do you think was the actual hardest thing of building your company? Oh, boy. I know what it is, and I'm hoping my husband isn't listening. So my husband now works for me. Well, we work together, right? But well, you're 51% and he's 49. I love him dearly, but now he works full-time for the company. He came on in July of last year, so he left a great job as an engineer to come here, which is kind of a great compliment. But his job was, for many years, he's the main breadwinner, and I had to sort of operate this business behind closed doors. I remember having my laptop in bed and he'd be sleeping and I thought I had to be the good wife and I'd sit in bed, he'd go to sleep and I would pull the covers over my head and I'd do all my customer service emails from bed so I wouldn't wake him up because I was sort of playing two roles that I thought I had to play. It was really tough and I never really felt like I could completely confide in anyone with the level of stress and uncertainty that comes along with growing a business and that doubt, I think that we all deal with it at some point. So I think that was the hardest part of all of this. And it's interesting now to watch him being part of our management meetings. And he's like, this is so crazy. It's so stressful. You're growing so fast. I'm like, this is nothing because we have a team of people. We have 26 people now to help us. It used to be two. <laughs> I don't know. I felt almost ashamed to show that there were like breaks sometimes in the armor, that I really was truly stressed out and that me trying to serve all these other roles that I thought I was supposed to play like housekeeper and wife and cook and all of this was really impeding on my ability to do what I think I was put on this earth to do, which is to run this. It was just hard on you because you didn't want to like vent or talk about it too much if he was sound like he had maybe a stressful job too. And obviously y'all moving around and stuff, but was it having these two identities and not bringing that on his plate while you were trying to also grow this business? Yeah, because I didn't know if it's easy to say, yeah, the business is a success now, but I had no idea. So if I'm going to go and say like, oh, all this shit's happening over dinner and he's actually working on like shooting missiles out of the sky, his job trumped mine every time at that point. I didn't want to derail his train. So I internalized a lot and that was difficult. So if you had to do it over again, how would you do it? I don't think I'd do it any differently. <laughs> I definitely understand what you're saying because you didn't know at the time it was going to get this big, right? You maybe mm -hmm. had hopeful visions and stuff, but I can definitely relate, at least understand. I'm sure there's many women who can understand who are trying a side business at first that you don't really know if it's going to work out at first. And so you don't want to necessarily, you know, tell them about all the stuff as he's the breadwinner and right. you're trying to be a good wife at the same time, you said. Yeah, I was still struggling with societal norms and upbringing and traditional households, things like that. Even though I wasn't brought up in that environment, that's his background. And it's like we were more and less newlywed. I mean, we were married less than five years at that point. I didn't want to screw things up and I wouldn't have changed the way I did. I think it made me mentally very tough. But now on the other side, I'm like, okay, this is, I used to do all of this. I'm not doing that anymore. Now there's this redefinition of what our relationship is. And it's kind of awesome. It's a whole new chapter and it's almost like a new lease on marriage and working together. A lot of people thought we were really nuts for working together but we're doing amazing. And it's great to work with alongside my husband every day. How often are y'all seeing each other at work, I guess, doing this? Because you're still early on in this. So I think anyone who's working with a significant other can hopefully learn something here. Yeah, I mean, like we're almost a year in, but his office is right next to mine. I found an amazing therapist for us to go to on biweekly basis who I've looked for a few in the past because it's, again, blocking out that time. It's hard to block out the time to just focus on each other because it's easy to talk about the business. Then you kind of get off of like, oh yeah, we have this marriage thing we have to still make sure is doing what it needs to do. There's relationship needs no matter who you are. And you have a kid still. And we have a kid. We have a two-year-old who's like, man, she is a piston. But uh, 
this kid doesn't go to bed until 11 o'clock at night. So I don't even know how I'm functioning right now. But the thing that I think is working for us is sticking to going to this therapist. And this therapist is great because he has a background in coaching executives and small business owners. So there's an understanding. I've tried other therapists before in vetting that process. And if that's anything I would put out there to people that are working together, just slate that time out. Every other week, we do it through an app actually. And we do FaceTime with this guy and it's awesome because then we don't have to even leave the office. And what's the app called so someone can use it? Yeah, it's called BetterHelp. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be a sponsor here soon. I'm working on it. Yeah, really a fantastic app. And the thing I like is if you're not thrilled with someone you get linked up with and they're not really right fit, it's not this awkward thing. Like you can just switch your counselor very easily, which has been, I'm really into self-development and taking that time to invest it in yourself and your family. And I think that is one of my secrets behind like the curtain, bouncing things off of people just to let it percolate. I really am a huge fan of that app. But I think the other thing that works very well is saying when we get home, our business hats come off and and we go to this place of I mom, your dad and saying, okay, you know, we're not going to talk about this right now. Shelf it, email it to me and we'll talk about it tomorrow when we're in work. So what's been the best thing about growing your business? Oh man, so many good things. <laughs> I know you've been talking about bringing those jobs as well, but I mean, even some other things are just curious. So hopefully motivate some other people to get to a business your size. What's been great about it? It sounds a little shallow, but it is to have money in the bank. That's really empowering for me to know that I built something that I could sell one day if I wanted to. I could pass it on. I could ESOP the company and pass it on to my employees. And I don't think that's shallow at all because what I talk to a lot of people, even on these interviews, it's like having that money gives you the freedom to do whatever you want, right? Maybe if you could sell your company for enough, you could do whatever you want, move somewhere else with your family, do whatever. So I don't think it's really shallow. When people get into buying the material things and thinking that's going to bring them happiness, that's where that issue kind of yeah. pops up. Yeah, I'm so not into that. I love my old Navy jeans <laughs> and doing that. But I think what's been really cool for me is I've had life coaches and counselors tell me that I shouldn't be meddling in my husband's job. And what I mean by that is that I would watch him work and he's still my husband, like at the end of the day, and I'd see his soul get sucked out of him. And I knew that he was this really creative, awesome dude, but not when he was working for someone else. It's painful to watch someone you love go through that. Like six weeks after our daughter was born, he was pulled out to a job. He had to work 60 days. He got no days off. He was working 12 plus hours a day and it sucked. And he got to FaceTime with us for like four or five minutes. That was really hard for me. The amazing thing about having a business is that I had the ability to actually do something about it and buy him out of his position and say, you know what? Enough of this. You need to be at home with your kid. You need to have that relationship with her. You need to have a relationship with me that's more than five minutes on FaceTime. And being able to sort of manipulate your universe a little bit is really freaking empowering. And it's one of my biggest accomplishments with the business. Thank you for sharing that. I think that will motivate some people they're starting off early on, like they want to get to that point where maybe they could work with their husband or wife if they see their significant other in a job that's draining them, right? And be able to work with their company. So thank you for sharing that and for everything you shared in this interview. If there's one last thing you want to leave with everyone who's listening, what would that be? It's this concept of how not to do what I did for a long time in leadership, which is called seagull management. And it's becoming more organized. So if anyone doesn't know what seagull management is, it's when you have a team and you sort of go into a room and like a seagull, you shit your ideas all over everyone. And then you fly away. That happens when you don't have that time management and you don't allow that space to let the ideas really grow in your head. And then you really roadmap them out and be truly be the leader who you are. So stepping away from that seagull management idea, like, hey, here's an idea. Let's just try it because something flashy. Having that discipline, sitting down and road mapping out really what those plans are. And this is simple, basic business stuff, but it's sort of the old school stuff does work still, even in a high fast paced economy or in the world of e-commerce stuff moves so quickly. I think the takeaway is getting the discipline to just having the path forward. And I keep going back to this word discipline, but it's coming up for me so much to say, okay, this is what I'm just going to focus on. These one or two things that are very important to my business and having the confidence to just stick to those and not be attached to flashy things that can take you off course of what your business and the legacy that you're going to leave is. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you don't have the focus and you're being like the seagull that you talked about, right? You're right, just going around exactly. doing everything. And you say it's old school stuff. If it works, it works. It's kind of like if someone's losing weight and people are like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm eating healthy. That's all it was. Like how hard was that? Right. Right. But enough people don't do it. So that's the issue. Thank you again for coming on and thank sharing you. your story, Nicole. If anyone wanted to write you hate mail or say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best <laughs> way for them to reach you? It's Nicole at darngoodyarn.com. You can reach me there. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story, Nicole. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, don't worry, Mother Effer. I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse, or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34, with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Ann Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talked with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.